And I'm actually thrilled to be calling Natalie because in many ways this uh, presentation today is both a confirmation of and a bit of a departure from what she presented here as well. And the last, one of the last points she made, that our obesity rates aren't dropping despite you know, so much attention nationally in the US but also globally to the matter of obesity. Uh, despite all that attention, obesity rates uh, as they're measured, which is itself problematic, right, but as they're measured are not dropping. In fact, they're escalating. So that was uh, probably the, uh, the entry point for my interest in this particular area. When I started doing this work about three or four years ago, turning my attention to health communication to obesity in particular. And um, the other thing that caught my eye, uh, kind of the attendant point to that issue, you know, why isn't this working or apparently not working, was that the conventional or official discourses that we see, for example, under the obesity initiatives and campaigns, um, didn't seem to jive with other discourses that I was seeing. So I would characterize these conventional official discourses, again, in conventional or in a kind of a mainstream campaigns, such as the World Health Organization, for instance, the Centers for Disease, um, um, CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, thank you, um, in, uh, in the US. And uh, for example, Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign, these sorts of things, tend to focus in very many ways that are consistent with, with what we heard about already on a calories in, calories out model, eat less, exercise more, personal responsibility, right? This idea that we need to restrict our calorie intake, make wiser choices, move when we can, and so forth. Um, and um, very much of this uh, personal responsibility model. So some environmental aspects are being now acknowledged, for instance, issues related to time, for instance, the time people may or may not have to cook meals, to work out, um, access, for instance, to uh, safe places to exercise or uh, good foods. Um, generally, you see that happening, but not so much necessarily, um, in fact, very little as compared to personal responsibility models. And um, the two are quite distinct. It's quite a binary that's set up. When they're not distinct, it's because, as Nelly pointed out, the environmental is often redirected to the personal. So if you don't have time to work, up, work out because of, understandably, your busy lives, set the alarm clock 10 minutes earlier. Sorry. So there's on one hand, there's an acknowledgement of the environmental factors, so it comes back to, well, you need to figure out a way around that. Okay? So we see that happening to some extent in these conventional official discourses. But as I said, you know, my thought was just on a cursory sort of awareness of how media, for example, articulated obesity, is that this uh, official discourse seemed to be consistent with broader cultural discourses. In a prior study that I've done a couple of years ago, looking at popular discourse, you know, it seemed to be a very common thread, at least in U.S. popular representations of obesity, um, very mainstream, very popular uh, um, texts or artifacts, is that obesity is characterized as a symptom rather than the issue. Right, that uh, it's a, a symptom specifically of an emotional damage or an emotional neglect property, not taking problem, not taking time for yourself, for instance, or some sort of deep-seated inferiority or shyness, you know, a feeling of inferiority or shyness that causes one to eat more. The idea of emotional eating, for instance, or stress eating or eating to fill a hole. Some of you may have heard, you know, these phrases being popularized in some sense or another. Um, so it's what's interesting about this is that the individual environmental components are still there. But they're reconfigured. It's actually not happening in the conventional ways, right? That there is a personal role now, but it's no longer a responsibility to lose weight. And it's a matter of agency to the extent that you know you can do it if you want to, if you want to go deep and figure out what the real problem is. It's no longer a moral or civic obligation. Now it's an opportunity, and it's all within this couch within this broader rhetoric of self-actualization or authenticity. So that was one, you know, uh, discourse that I found to be very prominent uh, that was very different from this official discourse we were getting on one hand. 
but had much, so much traction, uh, it seemed to be, with uh, certainly those mainstream audiences. So what I'll talk about today is that because obviously the nature of what we're talking about today is news coverage of obesity, specifically in U.S. media, and I would like to put the time frame in there. I looked at U.S. media from June of 2009 to December of 2010, so an 18-month period. And I focused in the U.S. and three national newspapers, specifically USA Today, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. New York Times and Washington Post are basically national in, in distribution. Uh, two national news magazines, Time and Newsweek. Three main, uh, actually four mainstream national network television stations, CNN, NBC, CBS, and ABC, which are the major mainstream national networks in the United States. And I was looking for basically uh, extended or focused coverage, which meant three or more minutes and cutaway broadcasts for television broadcasts, for instance. So a specific story, not just a blurb, you know, that the anchor was mentioning. Or 500 plus words, uh, if it was in some sort of print or web. Um, articulation. I did a keyword search of the idea of the term obesity appearing in the title as much as relevant and connected with the framing analysis of 541 stories, 323 of which, or 60%, featured fatalism as this key theme. And this is a significant departure, I think, from what the prominent discourse is, which is exactly what Natalie just described for you. Right, this very strong personal responsibility aspect. And indeed, most of that remaining 40% still echoed that very same sort of frame that she was finding, that she has found in her, uh, in her analysis. But I think that this is a shift, you know, this, this kind of a movement toward a new way of thinking about um, obesity, at least as popularly covered. There are three axes in particular around which this, uh, this correlates. The first of these is contemporary life, right? And about 20 years the time frame. Uh, yeah, I, I mentioned that. I forgot to put that on there, but it's, it's June 2009 to December 2010. So this is more recent. Okay. Yeah. So contemporary life is one of these axes. 21% uh, of the coverage of the 60%, you know, the, the 323 stories that covered that, that featured this frame, featured the particular axis of contemporary life. The idea is, for example, one of the strong ones was that we are, uh, our lives are saturated with and uh, wholly dependent on technology. It's pervasive in our schools, for instance. There's a lot of coverage of childhood obesity in particular, and it's pervasive in our work, such that we are secondary of consequence. We are kind of tied with our work and our schooling to uh, computers, uh, and that's how we get things done for work tasks, for example, which causes us to be less active, as well as entertainment fare, you know, watching television and playing video games or something along those lines. And the issues related to entertainment programming are obviously time and the sedentariness that's associated with that, but also content, especially in relation to childhood obesity. The idea that, for example, children are especially vulnerable, but so are adults, to fast food ads, for instance. Also, seeing a character, a role model type character, eating junk food, for instance, seems to be correlated with, uh, with children, you know, following that example. So, lots of coverage would feature this idea of technology being a culprit. Not a new thing in itself, but the way that it's framed is really interesting. The idea that it's inevitable, that there's really just no way we can get away from this. It is part of our everyday life, and it's not practical really to unhinge or disconnect from that. Work demands, especially true here, the idea that so much of our time is spent working or commuting to and from work, that the, the practicalities of being able to find time to work out, for example, to find time to prepare meals, to find time to go shopping for whole foods, those sorts of things, are just not available to us. So that's part of it. Stress, the stress-related work demands, and that we work so much, for example, and we're so concerned about balancing work and life, for instance, also leads to higher cortisol levels, which can prompt, make us more prone to, um, to weight, 
to, uh, to put on weight. Um, also stress-related, uh, as well as the idea of lack of sleep. You know, many of these stories reported findings that were recent at the time that lack of sleep is correlated with obesity because of various hormonal imbalances as a consequence and cortisol levels rising, which is correlated with obesity on the stress count as well as the lack of sleep count, okay? The idea is, again, the important thing here is that these things are not necessarily new. This obesogenic, these obesogenic qualities to our contemporary culture have been pointed out in the past. The way they're being framed in this time period across these, uh, these artifacts is that it's unavoidable or impractical to avoid, right? So some suggestions made in some of these uh, this coverage was to uh, opt for part-time work, right? Or some sort of flex time scenario or to change professions, right? All of which are theoretically possible, but very impractical, right? So personal responsibility is implicated here. There's a, there's a venue for it, but it's just it's presented as not practical, and that's the key thing here. Um, Biology and evolution accounted for another 21% of the overall coverage, 521 stories, I think it was. Um, and this comes along the lines of a few things. On the one hand, the obesity or the fat chain, right? Uh, a lot of science was being reported, still is being reported, the idea that you know there seems to be, according to some scientific studies, a fat gene. And if those people have that, or thrifty gene, sometimes it's called, people will be less, uh, you know, uh, more likely to gain weight and have a very difficult time losing it, right? The idea of being fat but fit, but Natalie referenced this a moment ago. Uh, as well, um, whether or not this is accurate or not, in fact, I think now there's maybe a very valid point. You know, these ideas of you know what it, whatever your weight is, if you eat healthy, you're healthier, right, than someone who doesn't eat healthy. Um, but the fact of the matter is, it's identified as biological, right? We are biologically inclined. This is the way it's framed in literature. We are bi biologically inclined to gain weight. So it's the evolutionary basis, not necessarily whether it's accurate or not. Um, the gender aspect as well, the idea that women have a propensity to gain weight for reproductive purposes, and this comes back to maternal aspects, but I'll get into that in the homework in just a second, um, that women are just generally genetically programmed to gain weight in order to prepare themselves for pregnancy, to sustain themselves to pregnancy, through pregnancy and post-pregnancy with respect to breastfeeding, for instance. Um, and that women, for example, have cravings during pregnancy and they're likely to put on weight during pregnancy. All of these, again, are traced back to biological evolutionary explanation and very much associated with what Megan was associated with, talking about as well. There's quite a bit of coverage during this time period about the fetal hypothesis, the idea that what women eat will and you basically program their children from this point on, you know, to be um, obese if in fact they themselves are obese or have problematic dietary habits. Uh, a lot of findings as well uh, were reported in the media in this time period that the link between food and pleasure. Uh, there was a scientific study that got lots of play during this time period that um, that people who uh, who are inclined to obesity uh, must eat more in order to release the amount of endorphins that create pleasure and satisfaction upon having eaten. Right. So again, this is traced back to the biological or hormonal aspect as well as gut flora, flora in the digestive tract or bacteria in the digestive tract, which could in fact promote overeating in order to correct for an imbalance, right? So this too was identified as some sort of biological cause or explanation for obesity. Uh, again, it's, it's, uh, on the one hand, it's what's talked about, but it's also uh, probably more important for, for my purposes, how it's talked about. And the idea here is that it can be overcome, right? You could, uh, you know, engage in circling or draconian measures. For example, uh, there's another study that came out on the heels of the evolutionary fat gene studies that said, uh, that looked at the Amish, apparently, in, in the United States, the Amish culture, uh, which, um, 
apparently they possess the fat gene, whatever that might be or whatever that might look like, um, but they're able to stay fit and healthy because they are engaged in vigorous physical activity three to four hours a day. And um, if, we, uh, if those of us who have a fat gene are able to do that, then we can control our weight as well. But the realities of being able to find three to four hours every day for vigorous physical activity, of course, you know, is, uh, is a little far-reaching. Uh, so through Herculean or Draconian measures, like really restricting diet or really working out above and beyond, for instance, the, the way this is framed, we could overcome these, these genetic or biological destinies. But it's unnatural, is the bottom line of this framework, right? We are fighting our own biological destiny if we, uh, if we uh, undertake measures to avoid it, okay? A third axis, or the final third axis, is ineffective or detrimental legislation. And about 18% of all the news stories that featured obesity as a primary story in this time frame uh, talked about this. And these centered around you know, three sub-axes, I suppose. School food provisions, you know, what foods were made available to, to children in schools and what should be made available to them in schools. Posting nutritional information in restaurants um, about calories, trans fats, for instance, and unsaturated fats, those sorts of things, and changing access to foods, especially through poor and urban environments. For example, in New York City, there was an ordinance passed on long ago to, to bring green carts uh, or green produce carts into low-income and impoverished neighborhoods because most individuals who reside in those communities have a very long way to go, and that assumes they have transportation, which many of them do not. You know, sometimes 20 to 30 miles to get to the closest venue that could offer produce, uh, as opposed to convenience stores, for example, and things like that. Or to ban the opening of fast food restaurants in these same sorts of neighborhoods. Right? The idea that these are very problematic foods, and it's uh, creating a condition or a situation in environments where you know, problematic, uh, where obesity is, is being engendered or invited. So the interesting thing is you might think, since these are really addressing environmental considerations, that the antidote, you know, to, this is a very cynical point of view, I know, my, my, I did go into a cynical attitude, I have to admit. I was thinking, you know, I would think the obvious one would be to say, well, you can't control, people are going to do it anyway. You know, even if you post the information, they're still going to eat that food, and it's up to them not to do it to begin with. But interestingly, that was never, uh, or actually very rarely, something that was addressed in the stories that came up. The key issues were that these policies were economically aggressive or regressive. They were denying, you know, basically the, the uh, ambitions and the goals of individuals who were trying to, for example, open fast food franchises, you know, one of the ways to be successful in those communities, um, or to uh, threaten businesses like convenience food stores because people would now be going to buy whole foods. So the interesting thing was the argument here was that uh, it was economically problematic to a free market system, a very US, very common US argument, as I'm sure you know. And uh, also that it was paternalistic, right? The idea that we, uh, that someone else, sort of a nanny state sort of argument, right? That someone else is making decisions for what impoverished individuals should be eating, for instance, you know, is uh, really problematic. Uh, it's not so much that this is not invalid, that this is invalid, right? The idea that it's framed this way in such a way that it's just futile, you know, it's not going to create a problem, that creates other problems, um, which are very neoliberal in their orientation, right? This idea that they appear to be progressive, right? But in fact, they're very conservative, these policies and these philosophies that undergird them. So again, the idea here that uh, in my underlying argument here is that fatalism is a powerful trend, powerful recent trend that represents a departure from the very powerful uh, uh, conventional discourse that we've seen historically and is now being laid out for us, um, and uh, that we see in our still in our official discourses uh, of campaigns and initiatives. 
And uh, it's some recent trends, you know, one that's gaining ground. You know, we're seeing about 60% of stories in this time frame, as I said. Um, the interesting thing here is that the personal environmental explanations, you know, this bifurcated or this binary that's kind of governed the way we talk about a lot of health issues, especially obesity, um, are arguably merged, but in an unproductive way, right? It's rendered as futile and not negating each other. So there's just sort of limbo or paralysis. There's nothing to be done, basically. Um, so there's a there's a, a cultural critic named Tesh. Her first name Sylvia, I think, or Sophie. I'm not quite sure. I think her first name is escaping me right now. But that multifactorial causal model, and she identified this was in the '90s when she was writing on this. But I didn't stumble on it until after my analysis. So I just think it's a happy convergence. <laughs> but at any rate, um, arguably, um, it, this is a more sophisticated way of leading environmental arguments, and more precisely, institutional accountability and response. Because she argued basically the same thing. What happens is that you know you see these things <coughs> coming into play, but in ways that create a sort of paralysis, right? Or um, limbo. Um, so what she advances instead is this idea of a structural model where you recognize the relationship between government, individuals, and institutions, which require, would require radical reorganization systems on various levels, kind of anticipating next, your point about the practical application. You know, it's a, it's a thread I know in, in your interest in, uh, in the presentations here today. But this might include, for example, uh, restructuring how we think about work um, and creating, for example, car-free zones, which are very unusual in the United States, um, or creating subsidies, subsidies for childcare at gyms, for instance, or creating, um, uh, you know, ensuring public gardens, right, in urban spaces in particular. There are some efforts, but they tend to be privatized for the most part, or very local. Um, so there are issues that relate to that, but we require something quite radical in that regard. Um, I'm still working through a couple of issues, you know, and I'm curious, you know, what you might want to think either in formal or in context. You know, why are these disparities, why am I finding these disparities across venues? Why are they disparate from each other? Why are they localized in particular, like popular genre, media genre, and so forth? What are the implications for policy? You know, how, what, how would policy be reorganized or reoriented oriented to account for these, you know, cultural discourses that seem to have traction? How pervasive is this volatility or instability, this discursive instability, for example, globally? Is it manifest in similar or different ways if there is that same sort of instability? So these are all questions that I'm still working with here as part of this broader project. 